Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn. Thank you, as always, for joining me. I missed you last week. I had to skip a week. Two basic reasons for that, in case you care. One is the manuscript for my second uh, creative nonfiction novel went to the publisher this week. So last weekend was largely spent with editing, revising, tweaking, obsessing over details. And then the second reason is the topic that I had planned for last week turned out to require a little bit more thought and research than I had planned on. So that one will be coming up next week. Before we get into today's episode, I want to mention one comment from the last episode we did. I had been reading uh, from a document, and there was a word in there, Poyero, I believe it was, and I made a comment that it, that um, that was chicken farmer or chicken rancher uh, or otherwise said something that wasn't correct. And a listener sent me an email and said, uh, in no, no uncertain words, I think his exact words were, if you're going to do a narco podcast, learn the slang. And I appreciated the comment. Maybe not the tone, but I appreciate the comment because I try to get it right. I really do. And with respect to the word itself, um, I'd actually taken it from a translation from somebody else who didn't know exactly what that meant. And I've got three different documents that I have on the web that purport to be narco slang dictionaries. It wasn't in any of them. And I got to be honest, I have an 11-year-old daughter. I have a hard time keeping up with her slang. But more to the point, I'm going to make mistakes on occasion. And I want to be corrected when I do. There are going to be times where we may disagree on elements, how things come together, maybe even whether something happened or how it happened. That's okay. Disagreements are great. I want to hear from people. If I get something wrong, let me know. I'll try to correct it. Uh, if I get something, or if you think I got something wrong, and I don't think so, that's okay as well. All right. Let's talk about the topic of the day. If you've been paying attention to the news at all, you've probably seen headlines. And I'll read one right here. Did drug traffickers funnel millions of dollars to Mexican President Lopez Obrador's first campaign? Now, that's a pretty good headline because it talks about the first campaign. Lots of the headlines didn't really put it that way, but it made it sound like it was a more recent campaign. But there have been many uh, reports, news reports, summaries, etc., of a DEA investigation that involved AMLO's first, or not necessarily first, his 2006 presidential campaign. And we're going to go through that in some detail and try to put it into perspective in a way that maybe the recaps and things that you've seen on the news haven't done. Before we get into it, 
I want to go through about four or five names here. Uh, maybe six. These are the names that are going to be important in the the story itself of the investigation. So the first is somebody by the name of Roberto Lopez Najera. Now, I'm not expecting people to take notes. I'll remind people of who these are as we go through it, but I want you to at least hear about them first. So Roberto Lopez Najera in 2008 or so was a 30-ish lawyer. He had come up through the ranks under LaBarbie and ended up being LaBarbie's lieutenant, lawyer, etc. And he is a key figure in how this story and investigation by the DEA came to be. Edgar Valdez Villarreal, of course, is LaBarbie. We'll talk more specifically about him in a minute. We also want to talk about, or we will talk about, someone by the name of Francisco Leon Garcia, also known as Pancho. He was the son of a mining entrepreneur from Durango, and he was a candidate for the Mexican Senate from AMLO's party. And this, again, is in the 2006 election cycle, more or less, um, and, and subsequent ones. Okay, then we also are going to hear about Sergio Villarreal Barragan, um, who was El Grande. He was a key lieutenant to La Barbie. Then two important names, Mauricio Soto Caballero, who was a political operative heading up an advanced team for AMLO's presidential election. And then the last person to keep in mind is Nicholas Nico Molien, Molen, one more time, Moyi Endo. I still didn't pronounce that right. I'll try to get it right the next time. Sorry. He is a um, campaign or was a campaign logistics chief for AMLO, right? So those are going to be the key players in this investigation. The first thing that's important to note is most of the activity, these alleged bribes or um, financing that went from cartels, traffickers to AMLO's campaign happened in the 2006 presidential election. As you probably know, most countries in the world don't have presidential elections like we do that last for a year or two or three. So it's a relatively compact period of time in the, the, the 2006. I think it's important to set the stage of what was going on in 2006. Politically, we did a, an episode a few months ago talking about Mexican politics and talking about the pre-party. Remember, July of 2000, the pre-candidate, whose name was Francisco uh, Ochoa, was defeated by Vicente Fox. That was the first presidential electoral defeat of the pre 
in Mexican history. So this is the next election. Hey. And remember, Mexican presidents serve a six-year term and they're term limited, one term. So Vincente Fox is the president. There's an election coming and we've got three major candidates. You have Felipe Calderon of the National Action Party. You have AMLO and the name of the party that he was working or that he was representing at that time. And and this group has morphed and changed names on several occasions. But at the time, it was the party of the Democratic Revolution. And then you had Roberto Madrazo, who was the pre-candidate trying to get the pre back into power. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a few minutes. What about the situation with the cartels? At this time, 2005, 2006, remember there was something that some have called kind of the Sinaloa coalition at that time. The Beltran Leva brothers and their organization were aligned with the Sinaloa cartel. In 2006, you could kind of say that most of the major competition for the Sinaloa cartel had been eliminated um, along the, the Arizona border, and you had cartels in Michoacan, Jalisco, and Sonora, and even Colima that were basically branches of the Sinaloa cartel. Don't mean to suggest that there were no other cartels at that time, but at this time period, 2005, 2006, the Sinaloa cartel was definitely the largest, the most powerful, and especially in this coalition event remember it's not until later that there's the split between the Sinaloa cartel and the BLO as a result of actions taken by El Chapo so what's going on during the campaign of 2006 in September 2005 Remember, the campaign or or the election is going to be in July. So September 2005 for the July 2006 election, the party nominates Lopez Obrador as its presidential candidate, or they call it a pre-candidate. Up until about... March of 2006, the polls seemed to put him clearly in the lead. But a series of events that we don't really need to get into occurred in the spring of 2006, where his poll number started to decline steadily. And at the same time, the poll numbers of Felipe Calderon increased. Lopez Obrador kind of got caught in a 
I, I want to call it a um, a vice or in between the rock and the hard place of how liberal he was. So trying to appeal to a broad group, a number of left-wing politicians and analyzed and analysts, I'm sorry, criticized Lopez Obrador for a couple of reasons. They said that he brought in too many um, former members of the PRI into his staff and, and in his proposed cabinet and, and close advisors. There were too many uh, PRI um, members. And others said that Lopez Obrador, in, in getting the party's nomination, presented himself as a left-wing candidate, but in fact, he was very centrist. And I think you you all can can relate to that probably in American politics um, and even in in uh, politics from other countries, including uh, Great Britain. In May of two thousand six, so two months or so before the election, Roberto Madrazo, who was the freeze candidate gave some hints that maybe he could align with or Pre could align with Lopez Obrador to prevent Felipe Calderon from winning the election. Uh, there was a lot going on, um, allegations that Vicente Fox was using the federal government to support the Calderon campaign. Um, and so Madrazo was at least hinting publicly of this possible alliance with Lopez Obrador. Eventually, though, Lopez Obrador said, no, can't do that. That's not going to work because our political tendencies are just a little bit too um, too far apart. We can't reconcile them. And he said, and Madrazo comes back and says, oh, my comments were misunderstood. I wouldn't step down or step aside for any other candidate. I'm not going to endorse anybody else. I'm going to win. You can, you can see how that could go. Um, in 2006, right before the election, the Spanish newspaper El Pais uh, criticized AMLO for what it characterized as extreme verbal insults toward the Mexican government and particularly to President Vicente Fox. On July 6, 2006, the presidential election was held and Calderon won by 0.56%. 0.56%. Uh, Lopez Obrador appealed the results, demanded a, a recount on um, September 5, 2006. The Federal Electoral Tribunal ruled that the election was fair, that Calderon was the president um, and would become 
president. Uh, Calderon was a winner and would become president. There were, um, and this becomes important later, uh, there were um, protests. AMLO definitely fueled the protests, at least for a while. Uh, the protests were da- demanding a national recount, which never happened. The Federal Electro- Electoral Tribunal ordered a few selective recounts, but nothing that changed the outcome of the election. All right, before we talk about the investigation, let's go back to La Barbie for a second. So Edgar Valdez Villarreal, born August 11, 1973 in Laredo, Texas. He was a high school football player. Some say a football star. I don't know. Um, But he um, had blonde hair, blue eyes, and was often compared, at least according to one story, by his American football coach at United High School that he resembled a Ken doll. And somehow he initially was, his nickname was Ken, and that ended up turning into La Barbie. He um, worked as a Mexican cartel lieutenant alongside his nephew, Fernando Valdez, uh, After a while, though, he rose to a leadership position in the enforcement squad known as Los Negros. Following the death of Arturo Beltran Leyva in late 2009, there was a, um, a, a war, really a gang war for control of the cartel. Uh, lots of deaths resulted from that and, La Barbie became known for um, some of his videotape torture and decapitation videos uh, and and other techniques. On August 30, 2010, he was arrested by the Mexican Federal Police near Mexico City. He was intended to serve a 49-year sentence in uh, U.S. prison. He was staying at um, the United States Penitentiary Coleman II high-security federal prison in Florida for a while. But then when there was the the trial of Hanara Garcia Luna, who we'll talk about uh, too, but during that trial, remember, there was all the commotion because um, he's – La Barbie's no longer listed as being in the custody of the U.S. Bureau of Prisons. And there was lots of speculation about whether he was going to testify at the Garcia Luna trial, which, of course, he didn't. Um, But point remains, he is no longer listed on the Bureau of Prisons roster as being in custody. um, And... Uh, we can all speculate on exactly where he is and what kind of protective custody he is in. Okay, with that background, we are going to talk about the investigation. And the investigation got reported. ProPublica did a a series of investigations, interviews, 
received some documents from the Mexican government that became uh, the basis for their investigation. Insight Crime did its own report, largely, but not exclusively, piggybacking on what ProPublica had, had said. And then there was a German magazine, uh, DW. It's a, a, a media outlet controlled by the German government that also reported on this investigation. All three of them combined, you know, have a lot of information. What I've tried to do is distill down the pertinent elements for you um, reading all of these so that you don't have to. The person we want to start with is that lawyer that we talked about at the beginning, Roberto Lopez Nahara. So Lopez Nahara, again, started to work with LaBarbi um, and apparently LaBarbi was was not kind to him. He had to start at the very bottom. They said, you know, he was washing washing trucks, doing manual labor. Eventually, he uh, got more important tasks and he was managing political contacts, paying bribes to police, politicians, overseeing cocaine shipments through the Cancun airport. However, at some point in time, he started to have differences with LaBarbi who apparently thought he was a bit of a slacker. The report suggests that in 2007, Lopez Nahara uh, went on a vacation to Cuba, came back and found out that his brother had disappeared, apparently as a result of something that LaBarbi had done or ordered. And... Lopez Nahara then decided to get revenge. So he basically walks into the United States Embassy and says, I want to talk to the DEA. He um, gets some credibility with the Americans by telling them that the Beltran Leva group BLO had planted a mole inside the U.S. Embassy. The uh, man turned out to be, according to the report, an employee of the U.S. Marshal Service who had wide access to intelligence about the Mexican criminals being sought by the United States. The DEA moved Lopez Nahara to the United States and debriefed him extensively in accord with a law enforcement um, partnership known as the Merida Accord, U.S. uh, officials then invited Mexican officials or Mexican counterparts to interview Lopez Nahara. Lopez Nahara ended up going by the codename Jennifer, and his revelations became the primary basis for something called Operation Cleanup, which was an effort by the government of President Felipe Calderon 
to purge corrupt officials from federal law enforcement agencies and from the military. DEA, on the other hand, and and this is what ProPublica says, the DEA was somewhat slower to take full advantage of its informer. It was only in the spring of 2010, more than two years after Lopez Nahara had begun cooperating with the agency, that it began to focus on one of his more striking, striking disclosures. So what Nahara says is in 2006, La Barbie had summoned him to a meeting at a hotel at the resort of Nuevo Vallarta. The meeting had been arranged for by that Francisco Leon Garcia that I mentioned, the son of a mining operator. His nickname is Pancho. Pancho Leon was running for Mexican Senate as a representative from AMLO's Leftist Alliance. He apparently, this Pancho Leon, was friends with El Grande. Apparently, at some point, he and El Grande thought they might be able to help each other. And this meeting gets put together in Nuevo Vallarta, 2006. Another businessman was there. And at the meeting, they said, they being Pancho Leon and this unknown businessman, they said they were there with Lopez Obrador's knowledge and support in return for the injection of cash, Pancho Leon apparently said, the campaign promised that a future AMLO government would select law enforcement officials helpful to the traffickers. They were also told that the traffickers, that is, were told that the Lopez Obrador government would not name an attorney general whom they viewed as hostile to their interests. Some said that the traffickers viewed this as uh, granting them a veto power over the appointment of the Attorney General. La Barbie agreed to this transaction or this idea and assigned Lopez Nahara to meet with campaign officials in Mexico City and arrange the payoffs. Shortly thereafter, he was introduced to Mauricio Soto Caballero. Remember, mentioned him earlier. He was a political operative working in the AMLO campaign, heading up an advanced team. He also was a businessman, and he was the conduit. So in these, or as a result of these discussions, the allegations are that over the next several months, La Barbie's organization, and again, at this time, he was still very much aligned with the Beltran Labor Brothers, 
and the Sinaloa Coalition. But they gave Soto and others in the campaign about $2 million in cash. Here's a fact or allegation, I guess, that's very interesting. The last couple of weeks of the campaign, Lopez Obrador traveled twice to Durango for big, boisterous rallies organized by Pancho Leon. Remember, his dad was the mining entrepreneur in Durango. And it is said that La Barbie's group financed these big, boisterous rallies that they helped get people there. In fact, one of them was so lavish. It's said that they had a big-name band and thousands of partisans bust in from outlying towns and villages that rival politicians demanded an investigation into Leon's campaign funding. All right. Lopez Nahara also said to the DEA during these interrogations that Soto had introduced him to members of AMLO's 2006 campaign security team. Connections which he said proved useful when some of the men moved on into government security jobs. At one point, Lopez Nahara said Soto told him he might be interested in making money in the drug trade if the opportunity was right. By 2010, the report says, a number of Mexican officials had been arrested based on Lopez Nahara's testimony, including a former top drug prosecutor and several senior police and military officials. His name, though, was still confidential. Remember, he went by Jennifer. And up through this time, Soto apparently still believed uh, that he was working with the narcos. So for at least a two-year period, actually, you know, yeah, at least a two-year period, Lopez Nahara was able to have his identity held secret, even though he went up to the United States on occasion and um, was able to uh, feed the Mexican government enough information that there were these arrests, but maintain his relationship with Soto and through Soto, Nicholas Moyenado. Moyenado. There we go. Um, remember, too, by this time, there was now a war going on within the BLO factions. Right, the Sinaloa cartel that our Sinaloa coalition was breaking up. El Chapo had set up one of the the Beltran Leva brothers. There was a fight for control. Um, La Barbie was kind of going out on his own. 
the violence was extreme. So the idea that at this point, Lopez Najaro really wanted to get away and, and, and distance himself from La Barbie makes sense. In 2010 or so, DE agents were scripting messages where Lopez Najaro was texting Soto. In July 2010, they met at a hotel in Hollywood, Florida, accompanied by a DE agent posing as a Colombian cocaine supplier. Lopez Najaro laid out a proposal. They had some deals in the works. They needed investors. The payoff would be huge. Soto said he was interested. So weeks after the meeting, Soto flew um, to McAllen, Texas, to discuss a possible deal with the undercover pretend Colombian trafficker. Uh, And again, this was in McAllen, Texas. There were some issues. He wasn't really ready to sell the drugs. The guy said, well, you don't really have to, but you know what? We appreciate you coming. Here's um, a a gift, which was uh, a kilo of cocaine um, or purported to be. The conversation was recorded. Soto leaves. He comes back to, to the hotel uh, at the courtyard, Marriott and D agents were waiting. Soto flips immediately. <laughs> and he became a confidential DEA source known as CS1. Uh, ProPublica makes a, a point, I should add, to say that... Uh, ProPublica wasn't going to name him, but the uh, DW News, the German State Broadcast Network, named him. So they said, well, if it's already out, we'll name him as well. Soto then began working with prosecutors from the Southern District of New York. And he confirmed that he had taken two deliveries of cash. This is the important part. Two deliveries of cash from Lopez Najara for the 2006 campaign and that a third delivery had been made by another envoy for La Barba. Soto said that the three contributions amounted to somewhat less than $2 million, less than the $2 million that Lopez Navarra had complained. Um, the agents said, in their minds at least, well, that's just because of the normal skimming process. Soto said that he had turned the money he had gotten from Lopez Najara and the other La Barbie you know, um, messenger over to Moyanedo. So, this time, now the agents are excited. They're working with Mexican officials. They've got a new investigation um, called Operation Polanco. 
and they're going to confirm the evidence that they gathered about the political donations in 2006 and then reenact a version of that scheme with the 2012 campaign of Lopez Obrador that they assumed was coming. This time they'd have recording devices in place. This was Operation Polanco. In other words, they were going to go after Lopez Obrador in a direct way during his 2012 campaign. In order to deploy Soto as a covert or a protected name source, the DEA had to submit its investigative plan to a group of justice and DEA officials, something called the Sensitive Activity Review Committee, or SARC. According to the report, and I'll just read a part of it, the agents wanted to go big. They proposed offering the campaign $5 million in cash in return for promises that a Lopez Obrador government would leave the traffickers alone. If Moyanedo or others in the campaign agreed, the agents would offer a down payment, maybe $100,000. They would then, then deliver to the money and thereby obtain hard evidence of the campaign's complicity. With everything going on, they thought this was a great time. They had um, just captured El Barbie, or La Barbie, sorry. Um, They thought maybe La Barbie and El Grande. El Grande was captured just a few weeks after La Barbie. But they thought maybe they could get good information from them. This is all going to be perfect. This is where speculation comes in a little bit. About this same time, the Fast and Furious fiasco, drama, operation, whatever you want to call it, was coming to light. And the the fact that the Fast and Furious program had worked without the U.S., uh, informing Mexican officials, uh, you know, incited the Calderon government, increased tensions between the governments. A former Justice Department official is quoted as saying, things just came under a different level of scrutiny after Fast and Furious. At that point, everybody was in self-preservation mode. Nevertheless, the um, DEA, DOJ thought that they still might be able to make this investigation work because, after all, they were going after AMLO, who was Calderon's hated political rival. So they get the investigation started. They're, they've got a little bit of rope, right? They rehearse with Soto, fit him with the recording vice, and in April 2011, they send him in to talk with Moyanedo. 
And I'll read again from the report. It was a disaster. He was terrified, a former official recalled. Whether Soto mishandled the equipment or deliberately turned it off wasn't clear, but he returned with a truncated recording that was often unintelligible because of background noise. So about a month later, they tried again. They got about an hour of tape. It said that this tape made it clear that Moyendo knew about the 2006 transaction, but um, he seemed worried about two members of the campaign security team who'd been recently jailed. He mentioned friends in the attorney general's office who might protect him and Soto. And it said, again, I'll read directly. Although it was clear the two men were talking about the 2006 donations, Soto did not press Moyenendo to be more explicit or to incriminate himself more directly. He never said, I don't know what you're talking about, or I don't know any of those people. There wasn't anything said that cleared him, but the tape did not freshen up the conspiracy as much as was wanted. Shortly thereafter, Sark reviewed, or Sark met again to review the case. This was just before Thanksgiving in 2011. Justice and DEA officials in Washington were joined on the link by senior DEA agents in Mexico City and in New York. DEA representatives emphasized they were not seeking to affect the Mexican election, but they also made the point that if Mexico elected a president who came into office in debt to the drug traffickers, the consequences could be catastrophic for the two countries' law enforcement partnership. Not long into the meeting, the video link from Mexico City went down, said to be a common occurrence with technology at the time. couple days later, the agents and the prosecutors got word of the Sark decision. The operation was being shut down. In May 2012, the Mexican government extradited El Grande. When the agents were able to ask him about the donations to Lopez Obrador, he confirmed that La Barbie had made them after the meeting in Nuevo Vallarta. Vallarta, sorry. And that's pretty much it. There's a little bit of follow-up. There's some um, discussion about the uh, effects of that Operation Cleanup during the Calderon government. Keep in mind, of course that Calderon was the one who appointed Garcia Luna. And Garcia Luna was at one point, you know, essentially the, the head prosecutor going after the traffickers. Garcia Luna later was extradited to the United States and stood trial and was convicted of drug trafficking and conspiracy with lots of testimony about his relationship with the Sinaloa cartel, and others. So what do we have here? We have anecdotal evidence 
or we have testimonial evidence that money went from La Barbie to members of AMLO's campaign who were asserting that they were acting under AMLO's knowledge, authority, etc. But there is never, ever, and, and all the reports make this very clear, there is nothing to suggest that AMLO was ever aware of the agreements, the meetings between La Barbie and members or representatives of AMLO campaign, uh, or that AMLO ever got the money or was aware of the money going in. Nothing ties directly to AMLO. In response, so this all comes out last week. All three of these reports um, come out on almost the the same time. Lopez Obrador has a daily media briefing at the one on Wednesday. In response to these reports, Lopez Obrador does what you would expect. It's completely false. It's slander. I'm not complaining about the journalists. I'm complaining about the U.S. government for allowing these immoral practices that violate political ethics. It's not the journalist. It's higher up. In the case of the United States, he said, the State Department and the agencies have a lot of influence in the management of media and also here, but there is no proof. They are vile slanderers although they are rewarded as good journalists. It is also said that almost ever, or that lots of people in Mexico, including Lopez Obrador and his supporters, are suspect because of the fact that these reports all came out almost simultaneously. A um, professor at George Mason University uh, said, is quoted in an article saying that the timing made some in Mexico think the story had been leaked to reporters by some U.S. official or officials. It is kind of the reaction to the publication of three stories about the same issue that were published at the same time. And that's also something that's been questioned. All right, what does this mean? Again, now there's, you know, AMLO's going to be out of office soon. We have the presidential election coming up. There's certainly, you know, nothing prosecutable, at least that's been apparent. So what does this mean? Well, one, it could mean a, a decline in cooperation, right? So a D, former DE agent, Mike Vigil, was uh, quoted in an article as saying, uh, it's just terrible. It's going to be more drugs heading into the United States and more violence in Mexico. It's worse than when Cienfuegos was arrested. He goes on to say this is a direct attack against AMLO. 
Secondly, he views it as an impact on the presidential campaign or in the presidential campaigns that are coming up. Now, if you thought the relationships with Mexico were bad, they're going to go from worse to almost non-existent. So that's one theory, right? Um, There's another possibility of how this could go. So Claudia Scheinbaum is the candidate for Lopez Obrador's Moreno party. She is um, the presumed um, forerunner. Uh, She leads all of the opinion polls a lot. Um, And I think I said the election's in July, but I believe it's actually on June 2. Generally speaking... Scheinbaum has pledged to continue Lopez Obrador's policy of not confronting drug cartels. You know, the the hugs, not guns. But, excuse me, but she's going to be in a position once she's in office to enact policies that may or may not directly follow Lopez Obrador's precedents. And so if she's able to kind of put aside the you know the the insulting nature of these reports in the investigation in Lopez Obrador's mind then perhaps there will not be this uh, giant rift between the two countries and the cooperation on the drug trafficking front can continue. There are those who also think that these reports came out in a way that could assist the Republicans and um, the political discourse of the Republican Party on the, or some in the political party, uh, you know, declaring war on the cartels, doing more in the fight against the cartels. You know, this adds to the idea that Mexico is a narco state, that the president of Mexico in 2006 received money from the traffickers and that, you know, he had these, um, events in Durango that were, you know, ostentatious and out there and queerly influenced by narcos. And, you know, you could see a Republican, uh, you know, I'm not saying it would only be Republicans, but probably, but saying, you know, we need to do something more about this. We need to declare war on the cartels. We need to send in our troops, etc. And I think the last thing we need to to note is how crippling this is for AMLO's legacy. You know, AMLO ran for president three times. Uh, I think it's fair to say that he, like a lot of other politicians, values his legacy, thinks about his legacy, and this is a terrible thing for his legacy. Uh, Query how that impacts what he does vis-a-vis the United States and cooperation on the drug trafficking front during the remainder of his term, what he does after his term, how he's able to influence the next 
government. Uh, and that's something we'll just need to watch out for. One last note on, on all of this. I want to talk about Maria Elena Ermelinda Lezama Espinosa. She is the current governor of the Mexican state of Quintana Roo. She's a politician who joined AMLO's political party in 2015. She became the mayor of the municipality of Benito Juarez. In 2022, she was elected as the governor of Quintana Roo, obtaining uh, 57.06% of the vote, which made her the first woman governor of the state. And she received more votes than any other gubernatorial candidate in the history of the state of Quintana Roo. Now, I want to be very, very careful about this. There is one news article from a Mexican newspaper that I found. And I've had trouble corroborating this. So I am not trying to defame anyone. But the allegation made in the newspaper report is that the DEA and the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control is investigating the governor and her husband, who's also uh, involved in in her administration. His name is Omar Terrazas Garcia. The report goes on to say that It's already in the public domain that the DA is investigating several Mexican governors and public officials. However, in the frontal fight against fentanyl, the security agency has pointed out that Mexican, that the Mexican Southeast is becoming the mega laboratory of this drug. Drug cartels have set up our operations in Chiapas, a state border in Guatemala where fentanyl precursors are being smuggled through Guatemala. These precursors are taken to the Yucatan and Quintana Roo states where fentanyl laboratories or narco kitchens, as they are commonly known, have been moved. Therein lies the importance of the Yucatan Peninsula for the drug cartels, who for several six-year terms have not hesitated to make a presence and business with the political class. Therefore, it is not surprising that the governor is being investigated by the DEA, and that this security agency has put her on the radar of the Treasury Department. Why is that significant, if true? Because, in theory, one could then tie this to AMLO. Remember, she's a a, a member of AMLO's party. She has been for eight or nine years. And if AMLO wants to say, well, the allegations are the 2006 campaign, if there was something that was actually investigated, and if if there was any evidence against the governor, Governor Espinosa, then perhaps there would be a tie, a current tie to AMLO. Okay, 
That was longer than I expected it to be. As I say, there's more that we could have talked about. Maybe I could have turned this into two. But I hope that we were able to put some flesh on the headlines, put it into the right political context, both in 2006 and today, and to give you a little bit better sense of what actually occurred, what was proven, um, or what had significant allegations and what allegations there weren't. Uh, And so again, I hope this was helpful. That's going to be it for today. Next week, we're going to talk about the battle for control of the Mexican state of Tamaulipas. We're going to talk about the the premature reports of the demise of a couple of cartels. And we'll discuss how that all plays out in the real world every day on the streets in Mexico. Um, Look for the newsletter, of course. Um, Again, I always think that that's got fun and valuable information. More stuff's coming up on YouTube, so look out for that. And we'll talk to you next week, but this has been Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena for this week. Take care, everyone.